Look, I don't know if you guys have heard about this article in the New York Times about honeybees vanishing. The honeybee is vital to the environment. Bees, Scotty. Bumblebee! Killer bees. Are you endowing these bees with human motives? Yeah. Bees are funny. You're not interested in what happened to the bees. Do you have any idea what those bees can do? Welcome to Killer Bees. This is a podcast where we profile B-movie and genre film icons. My name is Garrett Smith. And my name is Tori Potenza. Uh, we can be found everywhere on the internet at Killer Bees Podcast. That's Killer BS Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and at gmail.com. Send us an email. We're a part of the Movie John Podcast Network on moviejohn.com. That's J-A-W-N. Our artwork is by Alex Schneider. Our music is by Christine Rayburn and her partner, Pat. And today... We're talking about Barbara Steele. Barbara Steele. Babs. Uh, I gotta say, for our intro, it does feel very weird having nothing between uh, Welcome to Killer Bees and then saying what the podcast is about. I know. You you almost said my line that time, I know. You? I was like... Ugh. I heard that pause. Yeah. It was because you almost said my line. I but just, we've, we've put it to bed. We have, yes. Um, I just go on autopilot, and I was like, oh, it's different, even though we talked about it. I well, don't understand. Well, I mean, we could, I guess, come up with some other not clever thing to say over and over Yeah, what's like, something not clever that we could say? Please uh, let us know. This is not a beekeeping podcast? The, it is not. Yet. Not yet. Yep. There is a beekeeping horror movie we talked about one time. I know. There, I think there's like a couple, kind of. Yep. Um. So, yeah. Who knows what the future will hold for us? Yeah, send us your suggestions. Email us. Tell us what the intro should be. Yeah, let us know. You'll probably come up with something better than us. Yeah, so. we can't. We can't possibly talk about the Wu Tang Clan again. I yeah. refuse. Yeah, I'm, yeah. So you give us something else. You were really excited to get rid of that. So yeah. yeah. Uh, At a certain point, I heard myself saying it for like the fortieth time, and I was like, I think I'm done doing this. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's jump into our episode. So before we talk about, uh, dear old Babs, uh, which, you know, I don't actually know if she would be into us calling her Babs or not. Um, what have we watched lately that you would like to talk about? That's a good question. I, I think I've watched all of the Insidious movies since the last mm-hmm. time we recorded. Is that accurate? Yes, I have watched the first two, and I, uh, I'll let you watch the others without uh-huh. me. Yeah, I liked this whole series. They were all like three-star movies for me. They, they never quite rose above that, but I really enjoyed all of them. I, I thought they each had like something to offer that was like worth me investing in them for yeah the first one i i still think is pretty good i feel like i yeah when we watched the second one i was like i don't need more of this and then we've watched a couple other like studio horror films of that time sinister and oculus yes both which i was kind of like meh yeah so both of those yeah insidious worked much better for me than both of those movies personally insidious is i mean james wan is a very good director james wan is a really good director and i really like lee wan l we're we're a lee wan l household exactly Uh, and so i went for both of those other later sequels which like you know i love flanagan but uh for yeah for some reason oculus did not it work, didn't quite hit uh the way i wanted it to um and yeah the other one is the guy the yeah scott derrickson yeah does did sinister and um 
Uh, honestly, the thing that I I disliked the most about that movie, I think, was the way that it looked. Yeah, so. it didn't look great. Um, um, but that Black Phone Booth movie looks really interesting. Yeah, Black Phone looks awesome. Yeah, can't, phone, can't wait yeah. to see it. Can't wait to see it. Yep. Black Phone Booth would be uh, would star Colin Farrell, and he's like risen from the dead yep. since his last excursion to a phone booth. Uh, <laughs> you ever see that movie, Phone Booth? I love that movie. I saw it in theaters. I liked that movie too. I did not see it in theaters, but I think it used to be on FX a lot. Yeah, it sounds and right. And I watched it every time it was on FX. Yeah, pretty, pretty cool yeah. movie. <laughs> like I really like that movie. Pretty cool movie. <laughs> I feel like you're the person where every time I'm like, oh, there's a movie I'm kind of embarrassed about liking, you also love it, which I think is kind yeah. of why our relationship works so oh, yeah. well. <laughs> Very willing to confidently be like, that stupid piece of shit, I loved it. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think maybe it's just something about that error of horror where everything feels like a little flat or not great. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I... I Specifically, I've avoided a lot of that era of horror, and and yeah. I think watching Insidious made me go like, oh, all right, let me let me dig into some of this stuff, and uh, you know, I'm maybe not finding what I hope to elsewhere, but I yeah. did really like those Insidious movies. True. I will watch the fifth one that supposedly Patrick, what's his last name? Oh, I forgot. Is directing. Wilson. Wilson. Patrick Wilson is directing. Um. So on Easter, Garrett decided to spend some time with his family and I decided not to because I don't give a fuck about Easter at all. Uh, and so... I was going to ask and with don't give a fuck about your family at all. So, whoa. All right. It's all coming out right yeah. now. Uh, no, love your family. Don't care about Easter or pretending I care about Easter <laughs> in front enough. of people that are older than me. Yep. Um, so instead, I watched uh, some of the Nunsploitation collection uh, from Severin that yes. Garrett got me. Um, and I was very excited about it and then realized that some of these non-exploitation movies were way crazier than yeah. I had expected. Um, my favorite, which was called Images in a Convent, was like softcore porn. Like <laughs> it was, there was so much sex uh, and yeah. very little plot, but a lot of melodrama. So oh, it just worked. It. I yeah, you, it, like really worked for me yeah, for yeah. all of that. Uh, like one nun gets caught, like trying to like be with another nun and so she gets like whipped but then she and that nun start having sex it's like so oh, wild that's awesome yeah <laughs> I was great like, what is happening great movie oh yeah um and then uh christiana devil nun was the other one i watched which was also pretty fun not as good images in a convent is like a really solid movie. All right. Um, but yeah, that was my very blasphemous Easter. <laughs> yes. Fair, yes. Yeah, I like that you uh, spent your Easter that way. <laughs> I, I wore a uh, a Mandy shirt from like the movie Mandy, and uh, my mom noticed that like, um, what's that guy's name? Sand or whatever the like the folk singer cult leader guy. Oh, yeah. He's like posed as if he's like on the cross on the shirt that I have. Oh shit! And so my mom was like, "Oh, you wore an Easter shirt," and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> You just let her think it was an Easter shirt? <laughs> she figured it out pretty quickly. Like, she took a second <laughs> glance immediately and was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny. I didn't even think about that, yeah. like, as your Easter shirt. That's yeah. really hilarious to me. Yeah, I mean, it it is a, a, about a man that uh, literally does kind of get crucified and rises from that crucifixion to uh, <laughs> seek vengeance. Yep. And, you know, crushes a religious leader's head in. So, yeah. yeah. Incredible movie. Really great stuff. 
Um, we also watched uh, Antiviral, which is actually really solid horror for being a 2012 movie oh, after yeah. I just dissed that uh, particular era. Um I so the one problem I think with this was that we watched it on like one of the streaming services that has ads. I don't think it was 2B. It was No, it was uh, like Pluto oh, or yeah. one of the others and it had like a lot of ads. So many ads. And I think that um antiviral is like very specific in its pacing and so the ads really fucked that up. Yeah. But that was a I thought a really great movie. I think Brandon Cronenberg is a fantastic director. Um I loved Possessor. It was like my favorite film of the year it that came movie out. That kicks ass. Um, and Antiviral, I think, is also very up there. Um, so I immediately bought it on Blu-ray just so I could watch it uh, sans ads because yeah, yeah. I feel like that will make a very big difference in a rewatch. Yeah, that's a good idea. Because, yeah, I, I liked that movie. I didn't love that movie, but I agree with you that it, it got hard to uh, invest in with all of the like yep. big, long ad breaks. Yeah, I think he's very specific in his pacing, which is something I think noticed in possessor too especially on rewatches so yeah do not watch with ads yeah um anything else you want to talk about no i think i think that covers it cool uh well then let's talk about uh barbara Steele. um so barbara Steele has 66 acting credits and nine producer credits according to imdb um I feel like this was an interesting person as I was doing research on because Barbara Steele in my head is like a hammer horror queen, which isn't necessarily true. Right. Um, she was very much boxed in because of her look and the types of films that she did. And because of that, like actually retired from acting um, for quite some time. Yeah. Um, so... It is interesting, I feel like, uh, hearing from some of these actors and actresses who have, like, been working in um, in genre films and do get a little bogged down by the typecasting and, like, kind of have to find, like, their own way to process that or deal with that. Um, I think she eventually kind of comes into the fold of, like, knowing that she is someone that, like, has this scream queen kind of status. Uh, But it is very interesting to learn that. Um, And so I picked this quote from her that I thought was kind of interesting. She says, I usually played these roles uh, where I represented the dark side. I was always a predatory bitch goddess in all of these movies and with all kinds of unspeakable elements. Then what is life without a dark side? The driving force of drama is the dark side. These women that I played usually suffered for it, and I guess men like that. (laughs) 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 Which is like an interesting, uh, I don't know, like look into the monstrous feminine kind of archetype, I think, for her. You mean the predatory bitch goddess archetype? Yes, which I think we probably just need to use that term more in our society. Yeah, get a, what's that website you like? Yakutori Boy, get them on a t-shirt. Oh, yeah, true. Um, So... Uh, Barbara Steele was born December 29th, 1937, in Birkenhead, Cheshire, England. (laughs) Very English names. Yeah. Um, 
At first, Barbara wanted to become a painter and actually went to school studying for it. And then in 1957, joined an acting repertoire. Now, Barbara's acting career, for the most part early on, is really designated to Italian films. Um, So one thing that I learned was that she was often um, in Italian movies with a dubbed voice even when those films are actually being done in English. So there are tons of these different movies that she does in her career where we are not actually hearing her real voice, which is fascinating to me. Okay, that actually kind of makes sense to me. I feel like some of the movies we watched, sometimes you can just kind of tell someone is dubbed. Yes. Like even when the lips are matching, you know, Mm -hmm. you can just sort of like – that voice just doesn't look like it's coming out of that person. Yeah. And, and I, I think, felt like I noticed that in a couple of these. Yeah. The same thing happened, I know, to Ingrid Pitt in some of the films mm. that she did. And I think it's because, well, she actually had like an accent that is at times thicker. Right. Um, and did like a lot of Hammer Horror movies. So I wonder if that's why. But it is very interesting that uh, sh- uh, Barbara Steele was mostly dubbed in these films, it seems like. Well, and that was just sort of the way they made movies in Italy. They called it Tower of Babel filmmaking, Mm. where everybody recorded their dialogue in their own native language, and then they just dubbed it all to be English later, or all Italian later, whatever territory it was going to. But the weird thing is they would do it for everybody. Mm -hmm. So like even the English speakers, if it was going to be the English language like version of the movie, they would still get redubbed. They didn't even apparently record sound when they made those movies. Like no dialogue was recorded when they made them. They just did it all in booths afterwards. It's very strange to me. Um, And I think it's something that she struggled with a lot because she felt like she was, uh, I think she says it later, like a puppet. (laughs) Uh, And you don't actually, I think, think in that case appreciate how important like maybe your own voice is to that process um so it's just it's all very interesting to me and i can kind of see why she would be really frustrated by that totally um but she also seemed to really like in working in Italy. She goes, here I am in England and felt like I'd been born in the wrong place and the wrong temperature. And the moment I got to Italy, it was like coming back to the essential womb. Hmm. So she does seem to have an affinity, at least for like the climate of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of Italy, even if she was not happy with how her performances were ultimately uh, utilized later on. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, So her acting career starts in the 50s. Um, She, I cut down a lot of this too because she had a ton of uncredited roles. Mm. Um, Mostly it seems like until she then starts working in Italy. Uh, But in 1958, she was in Houseboat. Um, She had an uncredited role, um, but it's a film starring Cary Grant and Sophia Loren. That's cool. And then in 1959 was in a movie called Sapphire uh, about the murder of a young woman in London um, that exposes deep racial tensions and prejudice inherent to the area. Uh, So I wrote that down mostly just because that sounds like a very interesting movie. Yeah. Um, And then she was in a comedy called Upstairs and Downstairs, which uh, just seems like a Downton Abbey kind of show. I was going to say, that's like a whole like genre of stuff is Upstairs, Downstairs. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And then we get to her roles in the 60s. She did a fair bit of TV here and there, um, but one of the roles that she had was an appearance on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, which I am definitely a fan of. 
1960, she was in a movie called Your Money or Your Wife, another comedy. You must choose. Yes. It's 1960. <laughs> and then uh, kind of gets her, her first big starring role uh, the same year with Black Sunday from director Marvio Bava. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe Bava's most famous movie? Yeah, and she was 21 when she was in this movie. Damn. So this is pretty young in her acting career. Um, I had seen this for the first time like last year, and then we rewatched it together because I know you were on a Bava kick anyway, I've and I felt like you would like this. I've been watching a lot of Bava movies, and I did really like this. This is like definitely among his best movies. Yeah. It's really cool to see him working in black and white, and and realizing like. Because, like, uh, you know, color is one of the things that Bava is kind of famous for. He mm -hmm. makes these, like, really gorgeous Technicolor movies. And so seeing him work in black and white and realizing, like, oh, it's not, like, just the color that's yeah. doing everything in Bava's frames. It is how he's framing things. And, and like, really good practical effects with yeah. the black and white, too. Like, there's some really creepy moments in this movie that really stick out in my brain as being, like technically like very interesting to watch totally yeah and and like effective horror too yeah. yeah um but you're right like the color is something that always seems so inherent to his films yeah, like important to what he's doing on the screen but yep. it, a lot of it is his framing it's his use of light and shadow and and all of yeah. that is like very apparent when he's working in black and white which is really cool to see yeah and i think this maybe got a like keynote release or something recently like it looks really good like the version we saw of it was yeah. great um and i mean she's fantastic in it she gets to play two roles kind of because right. she's like uh, essentially like a witch that was um killed and comes back from the dead but then like one of her ancestors looks exactly like her so <laughs> she gets to play this like nice like i think she's royalty like this princess character yeah. a and fair then, maiden yes a fair maiden and then also gets to be a witch bitch yes <laughs> and she's like she's so striking looking there's like something about her face that like yeah uh you 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 do feel like you're looking at some sort of like mystical she creature intense eyes yeah. um what i actually had a quote that i skipped over a critic uh, named raymond uh Durnett, uh actually said she is the only girl in films whose eyelids can snarl which is <laughs> such a funny way to talk about like her on-screen appearance totally but i know exactly what that means Yes, exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is a, a movie where she was dubbed by another actress for yep. international audiences. Um, I guess that she and one of the other actors were fitted with vampire fangs, which oh. is an interesting part of this where I feel like they do refer to them as vampires, but then it's also something about the witch hunts. So yes. like there is an interesting like, <laughs> like blurry. Like hadn't even decided like what his yeah. movie was going to be about yet. Yeah, there's like an interesting like blurred area of like what like supernatural thing are we doing yeah, here? Because yeah, yeah. it is a little bit of both. Um so they eventually decided against the vampire fangs, but there are apparently some publicity photos you can find where they are wearing them, which I is I do kind of think this movie and story makes more sense as a vampire story, personally. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's there's certain elements they talk about, like yeah. the there are like you know vampiric like bloodletting kind yeah, of moments yeah. and such. But uh, yeah, it's it is very interesting that way. Um, so one thing I found was that she and Bava had some difficulty working together mm. on this film. 
Um, she sometimes refused to come to set because she did not like the way her wig fit or the fact that her cleavage would be shown. Yeah, as is uh, her right, I suppose, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, one time she refused because she believed that Bava would force her to appear nude. Whoa. Um, she admits that she was difficult due to her inexperience and inability to understand Italian, which is also kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I know very little about Bava like the man mm. uh, or, or even what he was like as a director. I, I just have watched like a lot of his movies and enjoyed them. Yes. It wouldn't surprise me to find out that like a young actress coming to the Italian film industry would maybe be worried about mm-hmm. like how she would be treated there. Yeah, and I guess not knowing Italian very right. well, if someone's trying to direct you and they're just telling you to do certain things or like motioning, like sure. I feel like that is confusing and maybe a little scary. Sure. And so maybe she's like a little bit more uncertain. But yeah. then, yes, being very young and new, like yeah. worrying about nudity makes sense yeah, to yeah. me too. Like that yeah. all seems like a combination of stuff where I'm like, oh, like there's, you know, some stuff that's probably lost in translation that made it very hard for these two people to work together. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, after that, she was she was in a movie, but had her scenes deleted. Uh, Flaming Star, which was an Elvis Presley movie. Oh. Um, she was the original female lead in this film. Um, she walked off the picture after an argument with the director. Oh, and Don Siegel, he's an interesting director, actually. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so another movie that like. Seems like she was going to be like a very big force in and then had issues with the director and was deleted from the film. Holy crap. So strange. Um, In 1961, she was in The Pit and the Pendulum, which was directed by Roger Corman, which Mm -hmm. we watched. This is another movie where they did not use her voice. Okay. Which is very strange. Okay. This is all making sense to me, though. I did. uh, There was something weird about both of these movies. Yeah. That's what it was. But but it doesn't make sense that her voice wasn't used to me just because, like, you know, it's obviously Vincent Price's voice and other actors that were in that movie. So it just was strange. Yeah. Um, But we, we do typically like these uh, Corman Price, uh, these Corman Poe Price adaptations. Yeah, right. Um, and actually, The Pit and the Pendulum is a favorite uh, Poe story of mine. I really enjoy this one. And we have seen two different adaptations of it now. Neither of them have like anything to do with the story, except right. for at some point, there is a pit and a pendulum. Right. <laughs> it's usually saved for the last five minutes of the movie, basically. It, it does make sense yeah. uh, because these are short stories. Uh, and, you know, I don't see how a short story like The Pit and the Pendulum works as a feature length movie right. with the material that is there. Right. But it is interesting just how different this really seems to be. Yeah. Um, but this was pretty fun. Um, I, you know, for the most part, liked this movie. I feel like I liked some of the other Corman Price jams more than this one, yeah. but I didn't dislike this one. When it got to the pit and the pendulum stuff, I pretty was good like, shit. this is cool. Yeah. There's like just a random torture chamber. Yeah. Um, I mean, Price is always entertaining to watch. Yeah. And for the most part, he's doing like, he's kind of playing this like sad, grieving husband. Yeah, he's, he's playing very tragic in this and then the last like 15 minutes of the film he gets to kind of be like a crazy ancestor similar to how black sunday goes actually which is kind of interesting um and then he gets to be like full-on weird creepy vincent price yeah i this movie was maybe a little bit too like um 
it was a little circular there it just felt like we were watching a bunch of scenes happen kind of like yes. over and over again until we got to the end Agreed. You know? um yeah some of that didn't necessarily work um Another note here was that she was slightly injured by Price while filming the last scene of The Pit and the Pendulum because um, he aggressively grabs her by the throat. Oh, jeez. Um, but she said, but she shrugged it off because the scene comes off looking really good. But I do know exactly the scene now that yeah. I read that. I was like, oh, yeah. It's interesting that through these early roles in her career, she's like having a lot of trouble settling in with the people that she's working. It, yes. seems, it seems like she's describing basically feeling or being in danger, like on most of the sets that she was on. Which in her like, early career. you know, women in yeah. the film industry, right. like, you know, that doesn't necessarily surprise no, no, me. No, me neither. Um, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is unfortunate that those things kept happening, yeah. but it also seems like she is vocal about these incidents too, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, in 1962, she is in the horrible Doctor Hitchcock, which is spelt without the T. Yeah, which is interesting. I to actually me. thought that said Hickok, but I see that you're right. It's Hitch Hitchcock, but there's no T in no there. No T, and I wonder if it is because like Hitchcock was such a big thing that they almost had to like change the spelling because I don't think I've ever seen it spelled without the T. Yeah, that is weird. So strange. Uh, I do I do want to see this movie. Uh, it's about um, in 19. 19- 19th century London, a woman weds a doctor with necrophilic tendencies and whose first wife died under mysterious circumstances um, and might come back from the grave to torment her successor. Sounds good. Sounds like some good shit. Yeah, Yeah. I'm into that. That sounds good. Um, She is then in a movie called uh, Captain of Iron. I will not try to say it uh, as it's spelled here. Il Capitano di Ferro. There you go. Um... (laughs) Uh, Furio, the captain of iron, returns to his village to find it burned to the ground by German uh, usurper Walter von Rockwitz, uh, who seems to be on a one-man mission to conquer, conquer 16th century Italy. <laughs> and assassinate the Pope. And he assassinate the most the Pope. important part. <laughs> it's about a Pope assassin. Very weird. Um and then in 1963, she is in Eight and a Half from director uh, Federico Fellini. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, did you watch this with me? I can't remember. Uh, I saw like a couple minutes of it with yeah. you. I watched this for the first time. I had never seen this before. Eight and a Half is one of those like big important movies that everybody tells mm. you you should see. And it's one of those big important movies that I was like, yeah, I get it. Yep. It wasn't totally for me, but I get it. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things now that I have settled into being a feminist killjoy yeah. uh, is that when people tell me there's certain like books and movies I have to like read or watch or yeah. consume that are all created by white men, I'm just like, yeah, do I need to? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm not even a feminist killjoy, but I definitely, that was like, but this movie was very like, it was very Charlie Kaufman. It was very like self-indulgent, mm. like, a, a white man exploring his own like inadequacies through like a sort of self-referential autobiographical movie about making movies. Yep. And it all felt like it was a little bit up its own ass to me. I was, I was not totally impressed. Now, I don't know, maybe if you saw it at the time and maybe you had never seen anything like this before mm-hmm. and maybe that, you know, maybe that, Maybe there's something to that. But. Yeah. Well, you do know how I feel about Kaufman. Yeah, so. I know. Exactly. <laughs> so it was fine. You know, I, I I didn't not like it, but I didn't really like it either. Yeah. 
Um, and, and Barbara's actually pretty minimally in this movie. It was interesting to see her as like part of an ensemble as opposed to like yeah. uh, the focus of the movie. Well, I do have a note here that reportedly Fellini wanted to use her more in the film, but she was contracted to leave Rome and start working on her next horror film. Whoa, okay. Yes. That's interesting because, yeah, she is like specifically in like certain scenes of the movie. Yeah. So that makes sense. I actually think this took a while to come out. So I think I think she actually had to leave to do the pit and the pendulum. Whoa. I think that's what I read. Okay, this just came out after yeah that. yeah yeah i mean i it's not like i could recommend against anyone seeing eight and a half it is mm-hmm. one of the canon important films and yes there's there's stuff in there that is worth seeing it for but uh, it was not for me really yeah, it, yeah. fair enough she I... was good in it you know because the whole thing is about fellini being like kind of an or not kind of but like an adulterer and like and sort of like getting involved with these like younger women that mm-hmm. he's like making movies with while his wife also then is like around for all of it. And so anyway, she's just like one of these like striking women that yeah. is like around him at all times. You know, by the end of the movie there's like a dream sequence where he's got like a harem of women around him. I don't even know if she's in that sequence. I think but... that might be the scene that yeah. I walked in on. Yeah. Um but now that I know that you were kind of like, meh, I'm like, great. I feel like I'm like you a little bit anything. off the yeah. <laughs> I think you would have hated it. You yeah, know what I that mean? might be true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, she's then in a, mo- a movie called The Ghost, in which she plays a character named Cynthia Hitchcock, also spelled without a T. Wow, okay. The plot thickens. I don't know why I'm obsessed with this, but <laughs> yeah. I am. Like, was, did Hitchcock, like, tra- like uh, trademark his name? Like, what happened? Is the, uh, Or, like, is that also, is that, like, a common English name? I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I've not, it's not one I've heard very often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a movie about a woman and her lover. Uh, her, her a woman and her lover murder her husband, a doctor. Uh, soon, strange things start to happen, and they wonder if they really killed him or if he's come back from the dead to haunt them, like a ghost, like the a ghost, ghost uh, which uh, also has like kind of a diabolique uh, oh, yeah. feel to it, as far as story goes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1964, she's in a movie called I, Maniachi, uh, which is uh, features of a series of brief, brief comedic sketches based on manias, manly, mainly sexual, uh, featuring several figures of Italian society. Okay. <laughs> which is, I was like, what? what is that actually? Yeah, I don't know what any of that means. Uh, she was in in a drama called White Voices, and was then in another Poe adaptation called Castle of Blood from director Antonio Margheriti and Sergio Carabucci. Yeah, I yeah. like both of these directors like a bunch. Um, yeah, a journalist takes a bet that he can spend the night in a haunted castle. Oh, we actually did we watch this one? Yeah, yeah, this is the one we watched. Yep. Yes. Uh, so yeah, Castle of Blood. This was one that. I think was recommended to me as like a lesbian vampire-y kind of film, Mm. um, which it has like a little bit of that. This is a movie that like really fell off the wagon for me though. Like it, yeah, yeah, I just like was like, what's happening by the end of it? I like both of these directors. I think maybe I like Corbucci a little more than I like Margariti. Yeah. And I'm I'm reading now, it looks like Corbucci filmed like a week on this and then like abandoned it and Margariti took over. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it kind of feels like a movie that like wasn't made by one particular person. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it was very strange. And oh, this is also the movie where 
a, a character in it is Poe. Uh, so Poe, like, right. is in the story. Right, right, right. Which is a very strange element to this, too. Um, yeah, the, weird, the weird thing about this is, like... You know, I was looking this movie up on Letterboxd. I'm like, oh, I, I like Margariti. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we should watch this one. This is, like, his most popular movie on Letterboxd, and I can't figure out why. Oh, that's so interesting. Like, I've seen much better movies by this director. Yeah. I can't figure out why this one is the most popular one. Because I just mostly found it boring. Yeah. I, I honestly found uh, it kind of... All of a sudden, it's like this house is full of ghosts, it, and it seems like it's because people keep dying here, right. and then they begin to haunt the place too. And so there's all these tragic deaths. You see some of these ghosts go through those deaths, so you're like with them and watching right, right. them. Um, uh, Barbara Steele is one of the main like ghost women that the uh, guy that comes to the castle kind of falls for. Um, okay. And so the beginning parts of it are kind of interesting because it's her and this other woman who's incredibly striking. I forget what her name is. Um, But they have a very weird, like, tumultuous kind of relationship that I was actually thinking the movie was going to explore more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it's all of a sudden, like, full-on ghost story where you just have, like a hundred ghosts and it and you're just kind of like oh all right this is interesting but i feel like when it had just a tighter smaller cast it yeah. was more interested in what was happening you know mia I'm, I'm like i'm not always crazy about these like gothic horror movies when they work yeah. for me they work but they often don't work for me and and so when they're not working generally it's like I, there's yeah. just like not a lot there for me no that makes sense um, after that, she goes on to do a film called The Monocle, which is a thriller slash comedy. And then in 1965, she's in the film uh, The Long Hair of Death, which I watched on my own one weekend um, for a project that I'm working on that's on witches, which I'll hopefully be able to talk about more soon. Uh, yeah. But um, I found this, I think it just found like a really good YouTube video of nice. this. Um, like looked incredible. I was actually really impressed because sometimes it's like iffy quality with some of those YouTube films. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this was another movie that was like, I wasn't sure if I was going to like it, but it was like part witch trial kind of drama part like diabolique-esque story mm, okay um so there's like a thriller element to it yeah of? the the main story is that uh the character barbara Steele plays her mother was executed for witchcraft she was mm. blamed for the death of some noble is executed for it um she eventually gets murdered trying to save her mother um and her younger sister grows up and the guy that like is responsible for her mother's death, like wants to marry her and like, she hates his guts, but they eventually get married. And then Barbara Steele's character kind of comes back and like, is kind of like a ghostly presence that this guy falls for. And so that everyone's then like plotting to murder each other. It's really weird. And I was kind of like, Oh, I didn't think this was going to be this kind of movie. Once we get to like, everyone's plotting each other's murders. Yeah. But then, uh, the ending of it is like fantastic. Okay. Um, it's, it comes back around really on it's like central, like witch hunt kind of thesis about like, you know, 
men in power are the reason that like all of these women were murdered during the witch trials. Um, And there's some really good vengeance that happens at the end. Fulfilling. Sounds fulfilling. Yes. I, uh, yeah, I like really came back around on this and was like, oh, this movie actually rocks. (laughs) So uh, it seems like one that not a lot of people have seen. But like I said, it's available on YouTube. There's a really good copy. So you should check it out. Yeah. Love it. That's a good recommendation. Um, and then she was in a movie called Terror Creatures from the Grave. Great title. Great title. A lawyer arrives in a castle to fix the estate uh, for its recently deceased owner. The owner's wife and daughter reveal that his spirit wanders the castle with evil intentions. Of course. So many evil castles, uh, which brings us to her next movie, which is called Nightmare Castle. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, a woman and her lover are tortured and killed by her sadistic husband. Uh, also seems kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1966, she is in a movie called She Beast. <laughs> awesome. Uh, newlywed English tourists uh, go to... Um, uh, an, eclect- an eccentric uh, Transylvania count, uh, and they work together when. Oh, this is actually like totally confusing the way this is written. I'm Here, realizing. I can read it. A newlywed <laughs> English tourist and an eccentric Transylvania count must work together when the former's beautiful wife is made the bodily host of a horrific witch. There we go. I was like, I, there are so many words in this, <laughs> and I cannot read them together. Um, and then she is in a movie called An Angel for Satan. Uh, which I feel like I saw a couple stills of this movie that looked really cool. Okay. Um, I was like, ooh, I might want to check this out. Um, but it is like another period drama um, that is like a woman like who seems to like be under superstition um, by the townspeople. And then there's like malicious things happening. So very much like standard 19th century uh, period dramas. Um, it's a pretty funny title, An Angel for Satan. I love it. Yeah. Um, oh, and then I think this one sounded cool too. Uh, in 1968, she's in a movie called The Crimson Cult. That is a great title. Uh, starring Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. I'm in. Sold. So, yeah. Totally wonderful. Got to check it out. Um, I think it's another kind of witchy film. Um, and it's got cult stuff, at least from the title. So I'm very into it. Yeah, cult stuff, Karloff and Lee. Let's do it. Um, and then she's in a TV movie called Honeymoon with a Stranger that stars Janet Lee. Oh, okay. Uh, which I feel like I don't ever hear about a lot of Janet Lee movies besides Psycho. So I was <laughs> like, oh, I got to add this in here. Um, so it's around this point that uh, she gets really sick of being typecast in horror movies. Yeah, I mean, this is literally all horror movies. Like all pretty much movies. everything that we just talked about is a horror um, movie. She says, I never want to climb out of another freaking coffin again. <laughs> Um, she goes, uh, she goes to the United States, meets a screenwriter named James Poe, gets married, and they remain together for several years. Um, around this time, 1969, he actually wrote a role for her for a, a film that he did called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Yeah, that's like a very well-respected movie. I would really like to see that. Uh, the role ended up going to Susanna York, uh, and Barbara wouldn't act in movies again for about five years. Damn, I wonder what happened. I wonder like how she didn't get the role that her husband wrote for her. Right? Um, and it's interesting, because like, between this and then the Elvis movie that she had seen deleted, it seems like she was maybe on track to kind of break into other genres and do some of these other types of films even getting into eight and a half eight and a half is like the one movie on this list that is not a horror movie Mm -hmm. but she ends up 
not getting to have yeah. as significant as a role as she's supposed to because she has to go make another horror movie. Yeah. And I like cut some stuff out of this that was like, you know, there were other like period dramas sure. and things like that, but a lot of them she either had like really minor roles or didn't seem to be, um, have like a credit necessarily. Yeah. So I just didn't put them in there, but it's, it's interesting just how her career shakes out at this point. Um, when we get to her career in the 70s, uh, she was on The Night Gallery, uh, which was uh, Rod Serling's show after The Twilight Zone, which mm-hmm. I really love. So I'd love to check that out. And then in 1974, she was in Caged Heat uh, from director Jonathan Demme. Yeah, I really want to see this. Jonathan Demme is, uh, you know, a, a great director. He made Stop Making Sense mm-hmm. and um, uh, Silence of the Lambs, among other things. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I was like, it's so interesting that Demi does Silence of the Lambs uh, and like starts with things like Caged Heat. I know one of his first movies is a women in prison movie. Yeah, I'm like yep. what the fuck is this? Yep. Um, so yeah, it's a, a women in prison movie. A group of inmates come together to combat the repressive and abusive policies of the warden and the corrupt prison doctor. Uh, and uh, Barbara Steele plays a wee- wheel bound, uh, a wheelchair bound warden. Yeah. Uh, which is very interesting. Um, one of the uh, pieces I was reading about her career, so the person was just like, she was miscast. A few years before this, she would have been playing one of the beautiful inmates. Right. Like, why is she playing this like old warden? <laughs> yeah, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yep. <laughs> um, and then in 1975, she was in Shivers. Shivers. Uh, David Cronenberg. I love Shivers. I was thinking about this movie the other day, like how much I really like this one. Yes. Like it's weird to me that, uh, s- sorry to Rabbit and all of its Rabbit fans, but Rabbit like, is one of the ones that does not work for me that much. Yeah. And I feel like Rabbit seems like people's go-to early Cronenberg over Shivers, and I, I am way team Shivers on that. I agree. I think Shivers... Of the two, I think Shivers is definitely the better movie and I think has more interesting... There are a lot of interesting ideas in Rabbit, Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't necessarily work as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like maybe some of his ideas are a little bit more formed in Rabbit, but the overall, like plot and story is just more fun mm-hmm. um when it's confined into this like yeah. tiny apartment yeah, complex that yeah. we're dealing with yes um i really love that setting um but yeah like she is one of the really memorable roles in this even though like i kind of didn't put it together that she was this character until i was putting the notes together mm-hmm. um but like i f- always feel like cronenberg films have really interesting female characters and not even necessarily like strong female characters or really like representative ones, but they're just interesting. And her character was very much that like, Oh, she's bringing something like really wild to her performance that I really liked. Um, We've talked about that before where it's like uh, men in Cronenberg movies are generally like the most bland characters in the movies. Yeah. That changes a little bit as you get deeper into his career, but it's usually like very interesting women, extremely bland men. Yes. It's yeah. I have always found that very interesting in Cronenberg films. And I feel like part of it is that he just like never found he had he found some right guys yeah um but i feel like there were a lot of duds in between when he does when he works with woods and goldblum like those really click and um 
Oh, I'm forgetting the other guy's name uh, from oh, uh, Dead Irons. Ringers. Yeah, yeah. Irons, yep. too. Um, and then, you know, Vigo, he's worked with multiple yes. times yep. now. So I feel like he has maybe honed in on, like, the types of men yes. that he wants in his films. But I always found that interesting that the women in general just seem to be much more interesting, even if they're, like, the side characters yes. of his movies. Um now, I knew about this piece of trivia, but again, didn't connect it until later that it was her. So the lead uh, woman in this film um, had trouble crying. Um, mm. So Cronenberg was using onions to help her produce tears. <laughs> okay. um, it worked, but the camera was out of focus when that scene was shot. And they were out of onions. So uh, her name was Susan, Susan Petrie, I think. Okay. Uh, she agreed to let Cronenberg slap her in the face to oh, get her God. to cry. Uh, apparently, he slapped her until her face went numb. Oh, my God. Uh, Barbara Steele, the other actress in this scene, was not informed and thought that David had been beating her. Um, after the last take was finished, she confronted Cronenberg, apparently holding him off the ground by his collar <laughs> as she shouted at him, threatening to beat him up. <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, it said, scared. Cronenberg told her what really happened, and they eventually go on to have, like, a laugh about it. Um, she says she does not remember this moment, and yeah. she even said something like, oh, me picking him up sounds so masculine. I feel like I would have <laughs> slapped him. And I was just like, no, the thought of her picking Cronenberg up yeah. and screaming at him is hilarious to yeah, me. it's amazing. <laughs> what a crazy story, like, top to bottom. Oh, I know. I really enjoyed that. I remember, like, when I wrote about Shivers a few years ago reading that yeah. and then being like, oh, damn, I'm glad I get to bring this up. Well, now you have all this extra context of, like, she, she, she at least it seems like, Barbara herself felt like very threatened on many movie sets. And yeah. so being present for something like this was probably some sort of fulfillment of like all of her fears. And yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and I feel like she, she seems to me, and I never heard her described this way. And what I was reading seems to me like someone that would be described as like a difficult actress right. or difficult working with. Yeah. And I thought a lot about like Shannon Doherty, who yes. like also has some of these stories, but a lot of them involve her like defending like right. other women right. on crews. And I'm just like, yeah, it's, it's because they were standing up for <laughs> yeah. themselves and other people around exactly. them, and they were difficult. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, after Shivers, she does a movie called The Space Watch Murders. Space Watch. <laughs> this 90-minute movie aired on Mystery of the Week series. Uh, it was a story about a crew member who was held for murder of her six shipmates uh, by the inhabitants of a hostile planet. Remember that uh, movie we watched yes. that was like sort of like <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express, but it was like in a spaceship? Uh, yeah, we watched it. For our Cronin Boys episode. Because yeah, Peter, yes. whose last name I can't remember now, was in it. Uh, Dvorsky. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that had Michael Ironside. It, it had like, Wilford Brimley. Wasn't it called like Murder in Space? I think <laughs> it was just called, called like, Murder in Space. Murder in Space. <laughs> it sounds exactly Amazing. Same. Yeah. Uh, she was then in a movie called I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, but uh, her scenes, again, were deleted. Hmm. Um, this sounded interesting, though. A disturbed, institutionalized 16-year-old girl struggles between fantasy and reality. Okay. Um, in 1978, she's in a movie called Pretty Baby, starring Brooke Shields, uh, Keith Carradine, and Susan Sarandon. It's a good cast. Uh, about a teenage girl living in, as a prostitute in New Orleans in 1917. Ooh. 
Yep. That sounds rough. Uh, and then she is in Piranha, directed by Joe Dante, starring Kevin McCarthy and Dick Miller, which uh, we have also watched. Um, yes. We did not watch it under the best circumstances. <laughs> no. Um, though this is a really fun movie, and I would like to watch it again. Yeah, me too. Uh, but, um, you know, we're people that when we watch movies, we actually watch movies. Yeah. We don't put movies on in the background, so that way people can talk over them, which is what uh, some of my family does. <laughs> yeah. We didn't see this under great circumstances, but it was fun. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it's sort of a... Uh, even more B-movie Jaws take, kind of, you know? Um, And Dante is just, like, a a funny weirdo, and so it's got, like, all these kind of, like, cartoony, funny little moments throughout. Yeah, it's really silly, and she feels like she's really in on the camp in this movie. She comes in as, like, one of the, like, scientists that's trying to help with the piranha situation that's going on. Um, But... Yeah, I just found uh, I found her presence to be really great in this movie, even though it's like kind of a side role for her. You're right. It seems like she like gets the joke basically and, and yeah. is delivering on it pretty hard. I agree. Um, but yes, uh, need to rewatch Piranha without my family. Which, <laughs> yeah. if they if any of them actually listen, it'll be really interesting to hear if they uh, say anything to me about getting called out about their movie watching habits. Certainly, the only thing they'll be able to say is when did that happen? Because they certainly don't remember watching this movie. <sighs> God, I know. So true. Uh, Anyway, in 1979, she is in a movie called The Silent Scream. Uh, during her first semester at as a college at a college, a co-ed finds housing at a seaside mansion where following the death of a fellow student, she becomes entangled in a murder mystery surrounding the property and its secretive tenants. I feel like I have heard some pe- I feel like I've seen some people review this movie on Letterboxd recently. It seems kind of interesting. Yeah, I would like to see this. You're right. I feel like I have like heard about it more recently than usual. Um so then after uh, after Silent Scream, um, I just have a note here that um, her ex-husband um, had, like, recently passed away after this. Um, so kind of speculating, like, between that and maybe just the types of roles that she was getting, uh, Barbara retired from acting for about a decade. Um, however, she had really great success as a producer. Um, she was an associate producer for the miniseries The Winds of War and the producer of War and Remembrance, for which she got an Emmy Award. Okay, um, that's cool. Which is kind of interesting that she makes the switch and then suddenly does, like, really well producing. Mm-hmm. Um... In the 80s, she did work on a few TV shows, but had no film. Um, And then in the 90s, it seems like she kind of gets back into at least some roles. Um, I didn't know that they had had done this, but she was in Dark Shadows. She had a recurring role um, because they did a revival of the show in the 90s. Oh, okay. I didn't Um, know that either. Yeah, because my mom uh, loves like the '60s original. Like, it's like a supernatural soap opera, um, and she makes sense for being in something like totally. this. But I had no idea they tried to reboot it. Yeah. Um, and then she was in a movie called The Prophet, which was a straight-to-video film uh, that she was in, hmm. and that's like basically it for the '90s. Um, 
And then we get to her roles in the 2000s. Um, she actually plays a recurring role on the cartoon Castlevania, which I really liked. The, uh, the Netflix anime series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, she plays this like older character called Miranda. Uh, but Castlevania is really great. It's a lot of fun. Um, I guess it's kind of based off like the video game. Yeah, it's based <laughs> off a Nintendo game. Um, but like, is really dark and... Mostly just, like, good animation, has, like, a really good story. There's lots of, like, you know, vampires and murder and war. Uh, That's cool. But then it has, like, a weirdly positive ending that, like, actually made me cry. I was like, this was really beautiful. How did I get this from this show? Yeah, all right. In 2008, she was in Her Morbid Desires with Robert Loja and Kevin McCarthy. Okay. Uh, a model comes out to Hollywood to star in a vampire movie and finds out someone is killing the young starlets making the film. That's that's a pretty interesting premise. Yeah. Um, she's then in an anthology called The Boneyard Collection, which I feel like I've heard of a yeah, decent amount. Yeah, definitely heard that, yeah. Um, and then in 2012, she was in The Butterfly Room, uh, which she did have a starring role in with Ray Wise. Oh, what an interesting pair. Yeah, and... I feel like I heard this didn't get great reviews, but it does sound interesting. Uh, A reclusive and butterfly-obsessed elderly lady suffering from bipolar disorder develops a disturbing relationship with a mysterious but seemingly innocent youngster. Hmm. So I do kind of like want to know what that's about. Um, And then in 2014, she's in the movie Lost River, which is directed by Ryan Gosling, which... I did not know Ryan Gosling directed anything. Yeah, I think this is the only thing he's directed that I know of. It's so wild. Yeah. And it seems like it's supposed to be pretty decent. Yeah, it's got like a, the poster is like super vibey. So I've yeah. always wanted to see it. Yeah, really good cast. Uh, Christina Hendricks, Matt Smith. Uh, I always. I think it's Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. I always mess her name up. Um, and then his, I think, still wife, Eva Mendes. Oh, right. I, for- I forgot that there were a couple. Um, Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, it sounds interesting. A single mother is swept into a dark underworld while her teenage son discovers road that leads him to a secret underwater town. Yeah, that's a cool premise. It's interesting. Yeah, it seems pretty interesting. Uh, And I'd be really curious to see, you know, Barbara, you know, older in a a role like that. Yeah. With sort of a a quote unquote like modern cast of good actors and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then she, her, the last movie she's in is twenty six in twenty sixteen, a movie called Minutes Past Midnight. Uh, as midnight falls, all manners of terror invade the earth. Demons, cannibals, killers, ghosts, and monsters swarm the world. In these tales of the supernatural and fantastical, um, so I believe it's an anthology movie yeah, that she it. does again. Um, so yeah, that's it for her her roles. Um, but like I mentioned, she did a lot of um, uh, production on uh, mostly TV, it seems like. But um, apparently, one of the main producers on Queer Eye from oh. two thousand three, which Good I thought was that's pretty cool. interesting. Um, I definitely watched like a lot of that early Queer Eye with my mom. Um, she apparently developed a fondness uh, along with a sense of humor for her horror queen status um, and even appeared in Clive Barker's documentary A Disease of Horror from 1997. Um, Apparently for decades, uh, she was silent about her gothic career. Um, An elective 
mutism party in protest against the movies robbing her of her speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was dubbed in most of them, uh, even in the English language versions. Um, a slap in the iconic face suggesting she was being hired as puppet rather than actor. Uh, they can be recalled now, though the feelings they inspire are characteristic characteristically turbulent. Uh, I've never had a good role, you know, she said more than once. I've never, ever had a role powerful enough, Hmm. which is just such an interesting reflection on her career. Um, Because I also think that she has, in my head, had like really interesting, powerful roles, but I also understand maybe feeling less powerful based on the situation she was in in that era. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just like really sad and unfortunate and unfortunate for her. Um, and apparently um, she and Hammer never like totally fused as um, as far as working together. Um, she says that she was never invited to quote, like join the gang of the mm-hmm. Hammer Horror folks, hmm. um, which is really unfortunate. I feel like in my head, she is one of those Hammer people because she just fits so perfectly yeah, into she makes, that. She would make sense in... in... Yeah. That, but yeah, I read this last little bullet point because I think this is an interesting point about the difference between her and someone like Ingrid Pitt. Yeah, so I put this in here, yeah, just because I thought it was really interesting. So I got this from one of my sources. Um, at the time, she moaned about the lack of decent and sensual roles for women in any screen genre in Britain, um, the horror scenes included. When she left, Ingrid Pitt moved in to her spot. Uh, Miss Pitt offered sex, naked, unadorned, and undistinguished. Miss Steele had, has been offering eroticism. British producers, as usual, never appreciated the difference. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Um which does make sense because I feel like there there is something very interesting and sensual about both her and Pitt, mm-hmm. but it is very different in yeah. their roles that they were in. Yeah, I, I mean, Pitt is kind of your, uh, to for lack of a better way to say it, but like your classic buxom mm. blonde, you yep. know? Uh, and uh, Steel is not that, but that's not even the point. The point is more that uh, uh, Pitt is a classic buxom bomb blonde in the sense that she is like a bombshell. She is like mm. a allow me to present it all for you. Yeah, you for know? sure. And and I think the, the point here is that Steele is maybe a little more mysterious, is willing mm-hmm. to keep some of that mystery alive. And that that in and of itself is a, is is she's calling it eroticism versus yeah. just sex. Um, and then at the same time, both of these women are like several times robbed of their voice yes. in films, yeah. um, which is also just a really interesting Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not even really a slight on Pitt. It, it just is yeah. an interesting difference be- between what they, they sort of offer to the screen. For sure. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting, like, considering how much she kind of, like, struggled at this time. But I feel like what she says about, like, the British film, um, like, industry at the time is something we've heard from other people, too. And why it seems like a lot of people went to places like Italy to do films because there was at least something kind of interesting going on there yeah. during the 60s and 70s. And I feel like we've noticed that even watching some of these older films, like there are times where we're watching these films and I'm like, I can't believe I'm seeing like tits right now. Yeah, like, yeah. I feel like I, this doesn't feel right for like Gothic horror. Right. Uh, so it was interesting how frequently that happened, like in some of these films of hers that we saw. Yeah. And I mean, it, it also goes back to like her thing about being a young actress and getting involved in the Italian film industry. And I, I can understand why she would have been afraid yeah. that that was maybe what they wanted out of her because for sure. 
that is what they're doing. They're going like, yeah, well, we'll we'll do what the Americans are doing, but we'll put lots of tits in it. Like, yep. you know what I mean? It's like a hundred percent. So yeah, that is a uh, that is our Barbara Steele episode. Hell yeah, it was fun to like discover her career. I feel like she's somebody I was like aware of, but never really like thought about yes. in any kind of specificity you know i also i think sometimes i get her confused because there is another hammer horror lady and that's uh i think it's barbara shelley mm-hmm. so sometimes mm-hmm. i get them confused in my head but it is interesting that uh i don't know her her career was much more interesting and different from what i thought it would yeah. have been uh given i think her her screen presence just in and of itself is so amazing and intense that Mm -hmm. it is unfortunate that she did not get as much as she wanted to out of her career yeah feels like we were robbed of like a pretty significant screen presence that would have done well in lots of other kinds of roles yeah for sure all right well let's uh wrap this thing up let's do it let's get out of here yeah let's get out of here oh i guess we got to plug things right yeah plug it uh, if people want to find us on the internet, they can find us at Killer Bees Podcast. That's Killer BS Podcast everywhere online. Send us an email, killerbeespodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on uh, Letterboxd at Philadelphia. That's with an F. That's also my Twitter handle. Yes, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am the Neon Banshee, writing for Movie John. Um, also have like several exciting movie-related writing things coming yes. up that I cannot talk about, but I cannot wait to share once I am able to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Check out the Killer Beast Twitter page for updates on that kind of stuff. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Let's get out of here. Buzz. Right. Buzz. Buzz.